Thursday, September 29, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Helen Scharfman, who is a professor in the departments of child psychiatry, adult psychiatry, and physiology and neuroscience, as well as being a senior research scientist at the Nathan Klein Institute for Psychiatric Research at NYU's Langone Medical Center. Hi, Helen. Hi. Um, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Hi, Charlie. And we've got Brian Derek today. Hey. Hi, Brian. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So let's get started. Uh, oh, I didn't give you a little introduction about your research. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so Helen's research covers a lot of ground in the hippocampus and parahippocampal areas, as well as spinal cord. She studies neurotrophins and synaptic plasticity, the neurobiology of seizure and epilepsy, neuroprotection, blah, 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 neuromodulation. I could go on and on. And on. Uh, neuromodulation by reproductive steroids. And, and ma- the main subject of today's discussion, uh, I think, is going to be neurogenesis in the dentate gyrus. Um, so thanks for being here, Helen. Sorry about that. It's a pleasure. So uh, let's start by just saying, okay, so the dent- dentate gyrus is one of the major sites of CNS neurogenesis. In your work, you've differentiated normal neurogenesis from abnormal uh, seizure-induced neurogenesis. Could you talk about the distinctions between the two and also the, the outcomes of each, given uh, your view of the dentate as a preprocessor or filter for cortical information heading to CA3. So there are kind of two things in there. So could you sure. kind of give us the overview of, of normal and normal, as well as your view of dentate as an information processor? Yeah, well, I think the idea of the dentate being a preprocessor is, comes from a, a lot of studies, um, not, not the ones in my lab, but uh, people who have um, simply observed the strong inhibition in the dentate and thought about what that might mean, but also perturbed the dentate gyrus and observed that there can be uh, too much excitation and, and decreased function. Um, in terms of neurogenesis, um, I consider normal neurogenesis to be a, a good thing uh, in the brain and, and that it improves the dentate function, and that's why we have it in postnatal life and why it's been preserved in mammals. Um, course, it's, it's not all proved yet, but at least my view is that when neurogenesis occurs and something like exercise increases postnatal neurogenesis or the rate of postnatal neurogenesis, um, most of the neurons turn out to be normal granule cells that integrate into host circuitry and um, preserve function. In fact, they may even mediate functions like synaptic plasticity, given some data that we know of. But in disease, um, my view is that there's a lot of um, changes in the dentate gyrus um, in terms of the extracellular cues that um, allow the new neurons to migrate correctly and mature correctly. And without that, you get abnormal neurons and abnormal circuits. And if they're um, uh, numerous enough, that's going to impair function. And the empirical data um, drive a lot of these thoughts. So the empirical data comes from looking at animal models of disease, where the dentate gyrus appears to be more excitable than normal, and the new neurons develop abnormally. So the simple thought is that new neurons increase that excitability, and that's not a good thing for the dentate gyrus. It's a little counterintuitive because in some parts of the brain, including the hippocampus proper, many people think that if you increase excitatory transmission, you improve cognitive function. 
Okay, and I would totally agree with that in the dentate when neurogenesis is normal. It's just when things are not normal that something like that might not happen. So things are not normal in epilepsy. Is that yeah, the so in um, the kind of epilepsy that involves the hippocampus, temporal lobe epilepsy, um, there is um, cell loss in the hilus of the dentate gyrus. There can be a lot of changes in the, in the granule cells. Um, they will express different proteins, different receptors. Uh, their circuitry changes. They form recurrent circuits. And um, we think that there are a number of new neurons that grow in that environment and are not normal granule cells. They have abnormal dendrites, they have abnormal excitability, and have abnormal circuitry. So in the lab, though, there are a number of different ways to induce seizure, and you can do it pharmacologically, electrically. There's, right. um, are they all equivalent in terms of the type of abnormal neurogenesis you see at the well, other end? Really great question. So um, a lot of us have chosen to induce seizures in animals using a very simple approach where we just um, expose the animal to a convulsant and a seizure occurs. And then there are other people who think that that's not the best way to simulate the human condition because in temporal of epilepsy, what normally happens is something early in life. And those laboratories have um, looked at something uh, like fever, uh, febrile seizure model, because that puts people at a high risk for temporal lobe epilepsy. And then what they do is just look later in life. And our lab hasn't done that, um, but it's really um, appropriate to compare what happens when you look at these models where an insult is given early in life to simulate temporal lobe epilepsy and you work with an adult animal to simulate temporal lobe epilepsy. And we don't see the same things. So um, most of the people who uh, simulate seizures in the adult are thinking about the individuals who might have a stroke or go to war, and they come back and years later develop temporal lobe epilepsy. And that's that, um, the experimental models uh, in animals where the manipulations made in the adult does lead to a lot of abnormalities, very robust abnormalities in neurogenesis. But in the young uh, uh, models where febrile seizures are induced, and it's very, um, it's, um, it's almost funny how this happens, uh, people actually use a hairdryer to warm the animal to a certain temperature. And then they give them uh, an injection of lipopolysaccharides sometimes to simulate the response to an infection. Um, that, that, uh, those um, experiments don't seem to um, lead to a lot of changes in neurogenesis. And that's been a puzzle. You know, why is that? So febrile seizures don't actually induce neurogenesis. Whereas well, actually, that's what um, some people have said. I think I, yeah. yeah, some people have said that. And, um, but interestingly enough, it's a little controversial. There's another group from Japan who has induced seizures, not febrile um, manipulations, but seizures themselves in the young animal, and they do see a change. So it may depend on the type of insult, but it's very important to say that the field is now um, a little bit dichotomous. You've got this robust effect when manipulations are made in the adult, and various labs seeing different things when the manipulations are made in the young animal. And um, we don't know the outcome of this yet. 
most of my work has been in the adult only because um, that was a system that we really wanted to characterize once we first made our, our findings, and we haven't been able to get to the other models. And you mentioned kindling. Uh, kindling is uh, yet a, a different model, and it can be done also in the adult or the young animal. And in kindling, it has been shown that there are um, changes in neurogenesis. So um, it seems to be um, seems to be pretty widespread, but there is some disagreement right now in the field between investigators. It seems like a pretty easy distinction, though, between early and I mean, a, a, yeah, it, it is an adult. It is uh, and it isn't. I think it is in some ways, but um, in other ways, it's puzzling. So in the human, the clinical population, temporal lobe epilepsy occurs with both um, individuals who may have complex febrile seizures or a war injury, young and adult. And in both cases, there are also a lot of people who don't. So a lot of young people get complex febrile seizures and never get temporal lobe epilepsy, and a lot of people go to war and never get temporal lobe epilepsy. So there's a lot we don't know, and um, the epidemiology is really helpful, but um, it's, it's both sort of easy to say, okay, we've got this young and this old pathology, but when you look at the human work a little more closely, it's not so much of an easy dichotomy. The seizures affect lots of different parts of the brain, and there are probably changes in lots of yeah. places. And I'm just wondering about cause and effect, because it, would it, it seems like a obvious experiment. There must be something wrong with it because it would have been done lots of times by now if it was the way I said. But just stop neurogenesis at a time when you think the animal has been put at risk for seizures and see if the seizures don't happen. Yeah, I think... an exciting result. It is very exciting. And some people have done this, but they've done it with um, drugs that aren't selective for neurogenesis. There are um, drugs that may cause division uh, to stop. And so you might have changes in glial division as well as neural division. And I think what's been holding us back from doing that experiment is the selective tools. Now people are starting to do this because we have better tools. And we can do things, um, or we think we can do things like stop neurogenesis only in the postnatal period, only in the dentate gyrus, and do nothing else to the animal. And if that is true, we'll be able to do the experiment. Yeah. And it's a great experiment, really important experiment, and it's just been very difficult to do because of the lack of specific tools. But of course there isn't a lot of neurogenesis everywhere, so is there any neurogenesis in CA1? Well, so, it's so um, you... in the hippocampus, it, the, we do not think that there is a normal postnatal neurogenesis in CA1. Um, there is um, gliogenesis after injury everywhere. And elsewhere, we think that it's primarily um, there's turnover in the um, cells of the ventricular wall, and those cells um, migrate to the olfactory bulb, and they become neurons. Okay, So it would seem like um, you can select, if you could selectively target hippocampus, you will basically selectively target the dentate gyrus. Yeah. And what's surprising is that even 
that has been difficult to date. And it's because the, ventricle wa the ventricular walls are close by. And they go everywhere. They're all over the place. Well, the ventricular walls are a lot of places, but the cells that divide there migrate actually pre-selectively and go to the, um, through the rostral migratory stream to the olfactory bulb. Um, on the other hand, there are a number of people who have claimed that neurogenesis occurs in cortex and striatum and here and there, and it's... Um, a lot of uh, people argue about that. You know, what there's been, there's really been a number of articles. So, um, even I always use the term primarily when I talk about the dentate gyrus and the olfactory bulb. At least to date, I think adult neurogenesis primarily occurs in those regions, but it is possible a small uh, degree of neurogenesis occurs elsewhere. And because of that, um, you really want to be as selective as possible when you would want to do something and ask what happens specifically in the dentate. So that, I mean, that just uh, shocking to me. There's like two places in the brain where there's adult neurogenesis in a big way. And maybe there's a little yeah. bit in other places. And I think this is one of the reasons why it was so hard for the for the world to accept adult neurogenesis is because they assumed it was going to either be everywhere or nowhere. So if I worked on the motor neurons and I was convinced there was no adult neurogenesis in motor neurons, then I would argue there's no adult neurogenesis. Uh, I wouldn't just argue that the, uh, in the 1950s or something like that, if I was working on motor neurons, that that meant there was no adult neurogenesis in motor neurons. I would argue that that meant there wasn't any because there was either everywhere or nowhere. So, And that makes sense to me, and I would have been just like that. I think if I'd been working in those days, uh, so it's it's weird and surprising that there is a lot of adult neurogenesis in a small number of places and very little anywhere else. Does that make any sense to anybody? Does anybody understand that? I think it's one of the um, most interesting questions in neuroscience right now: is why these two are the chosen areas, you know, and the dentate gyrus. Um, in particular, when you think about hippocampal-dependent um, cognitive function, RACA1, RACA3, the entorhinal cortex are very, very important. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't there be neurogenesis there, too? Why the dentate gyrus is a really pu a very big puzzle. Um, the olfactory bulb, I think it's a little bit easier because um, without smell, um, I think it's true that most mammals um, don't eat. Okay, so it's very important for smell, and it's very important to a lot of behavior. So um, I actually find it fascinating. Um, there's a, um, a woman who studies infant infantile attachment at the Nathan Klein Institute, Dr. Regina Sullivan, and she tells me how critical olfaction is to the bond between the, the mom and the and you know and the, and the pup, and that disrupting that will have an absolutely devastating impact on the development of the of the of the, of the rat. Um, but the dentate gyrus is is really tricky, and the only reason that I the only thing that I can think of that really helps me um, hypothesize why the dentate gyrus is one of these closer places is that we probably are underestimating what it does that um, as a filter, 
for much of the cortical input to hippocampus. Um, it is very important for fine discrimination of, of, of a number of different types of inputs, and it receives visual inputs, uh, olfactory input, all sorts of inputs from the environment through the entorhinal cortex. And it's incredibly important for the human and perhaps all mammals to discriminate, for example, face facial features. If you homogenize facial features at the level of um, you know, your parents and you mistake your parent or you mistake the place where a predator was, um, and you're not really good at being accurate about that. Um, first of all, your survival will be threatened, but also you might develop anxiety and, and all sorts of symptoms that we um, usually think of in, in mental illness. But if it was based on importance, then I would vote for the breathing central pattern generator. And that should be where there's lots of neurogenesis, because without breathing, you're dead in minutes. And so... Uh, so it's got to be some rule other than what's the most important yeah. piece of brain. Yeah, right, because you think of visual cortex and you know, the visual system. Um. When Brian Christie was here uh, talking about neurogenesis and newly born granule cells and what they potentially do, he talked about the possibility of it being a timestamp to group mm-hmm. bits of informa- related bits of information. I don't know how prevalent that theory is. Well, I think yeah. that's a really... Um, really interesting theory, but I think Charlie's right. If it comes down to survival of the organism, you want to breathe. <laughs> you know, you, that's a or pretty basic function. Smell, but you don't really have to keep track of time in order to breathe, so you don't have to know how I was breathing two weeks ago. Whereas if you were going to remember things according to things that happened at the same time, yeah. and you were some, it would be great to have... Uh, a time-stamped set of neurons. If it was recorded in those neurons, it happened at such such and such a time. I think that would be very useful. There's evidence for that. <clears throat> I mean, we know that once we induce LTP in the peripheral path to dentate, when it's induced again, uh, and the new neurons are selectively recruited with that second uh, bout of stimulation. So you're stimulating the same set of afferents, but when it reaches the dentate gyrus, What's happening is it's actually affecting new granule cells. So the output from the dentate to CA3 is going to be <clears throat> different, even for the same input, over time. So it's sort of a, almost a, a, a decorrelator. I wonder if there's a timestamp interpretation of the olfactory bulb story. Well, there, there's actually an interesting parallel, though, and that is pattern separation. And that both areas really are important to discriminating patterns. And and what how do you define a pattern? I think is really important. That's what you were you know a pattern can be a pattern across time. We're not we're not talking necessarily about a pattern in two D you know that you're that you're seeing visually. And I think it's um, it's possible that that is happening at the level of the bulb as well. Right. So discriminating between two odors that are Peppermint and wintergreen, for instance, is, is a fine discrimination. Discriminating against, oh, between two contexts that are very, very similar. Yeah. But I think one of the things that really needs to be considered in addition are two things. One is the function of neurogenesis in other behaviors in addition to olfactional. And one I think of is song learning in birds. It's clearly a learning task. It's something that arises and goes away seasonally, and it changes with each learning. 
because they can pick up different dialects, different aspects of the birdsong during those learning periods. The second thing is just the dentate gyrus itself in mammals. It's weird. It's not, there really isn't a homologous structure in, in reptiles or birds. And it appears to have popped up in mammals as this very primitive structure that it, it, it's, its development's even inside out, completely different from cortex, which surrounds it. So it's, it seems like it was sort of just stuck there as an afterthought. But, you know, with the mammals came the need to recognize your young via olfaction, also the pairing of emotion with identification of your young. So memory and emotion become really important at that point in time. And so, so looking at those two things together, I sort of see it as it's the one thing in the learning and memory system in the brain that if you did add neurogenesis to it, it would be able to do much, much more than if you added neurons anywhere else in the brain. And that's because of its, the role I believe in most, is the idea of the detonator synapse. And that is that the granule cells really don't so much encode information as they direct the encoding of information in a CA3 system. And that's where the pattern separation, to me, is the most crucial. Because if you have the same input coming into the dentate and then to CA3, it's going to encode uh, similar things very similarly, you know, or even identical things identically. If they occur over time and you need episodic memory, you have to separate identical stimuli over time and still store it in CA3. So how do you do that? You're going to have to alter the input to CA3. Now, the, in, now the question I was going to ask you, in your opinion, I don't know if you're keeping up with this, but people are really sort of trying to hypothesize what the new neurons are doing. And right now, I see, that in my mind, are the two competing hypotheses of the early retirement hypothesis, which is, I, I sort of... Tell you what that one is. Okay, the idea that is, so it's, it's use it, then lose it, basically. And, and I'm sort of taking that from, from Heather Cameron and Liz Gould. But uh, it's backed up by data, and that is the younger granule cells do their thing for a month or so, and then they become mature and quiescent and participate very little, if at all. Like college professors. <laughs> Well, I've yet to find that out. That hasn't been my experience. <laughs> but I'm, but I, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. So, so the granule cells emeritus. But they emeritus. never go away. Yeah. They just hang around, not doing anything. So they're like college professors here. So you have to edit that out. Staying in. It's great PR. For Okay. All right, sorry, go ahead. That's okay. So the two hypotheses are that, that the granule cells jump in, they help make a CA3 attractor, and then they go away because they aren't needed again, really, because the recall can be initiated by the direct perfect path to CA3 inputs. The other one is uh, mostly I attribute to, uh, to Shiro uh, and, and Fred Gage, and also Key and, um, God, his name. Oh, it's so embarrassing. She had forgotten your name. I'm really sorry. He showed that... It's your dentate's fault. It's not your fault. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the age of my dentate. My granules just aren't dividing like they used to. Um, um, not like I think Claude Wasterlane, but that's like... That's okay. Just go on. Okay. He's already forgiven you. Yeah. Uh, um, but what they see is that, for instance, you put an animal in a novel environment. Yeah. And that can cause survival of granules in the sort of critical period when they're seven to, to, to 15 days old. 
but then the cells survive. They'll live and continue to integrate and stick around for the entire life of the animal. But if you take that animal and put them in that same environment several weeks later, it's those cells that were conferred to survive are the ones that are going to express immediate early genes like ZIF with the experience. So that's the trace hypothesis, the idea that the survival of new neurons is actually making a memory trace, yeah. which is really sort of an, an amazing idea. Do you, do you have an idea about these two hypotheses? Well, I think it's um, much more logical that the, the, the second one appeals to me. The first one, I think, has got a great name, and I think it's it wins the title for the greatest name. But it seems so counterintuitive that you would have so many granule cells that would um, need to be maintained and require energy to be maintained and even have genes so that they're very resistant to insult and injury and maintain the mossy fibers when they really don't do much. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And it also doesn't make a lot of sense that at any one point in time you only need a tiny number of granule cells, although it's plausible that you've got CA1 and CA3 um, and and the dentate really does very little. I I like the idea of the uh, second one, too, because... It, it really is true that if you want to map your environment, your environment is incredibly complex and the number of inputs and stimuli you come across are seemingly infinite. So that having million granule cells or so, each one has, you know, and divided into different subsets, you could encode so many things about your environment um, very specifically if each group would only be Active when the inputs would be um, uh, presented again. So I like the fact that it would be a structure that would be elegant in its ability to map the complexity of your environment and the stimuli you come across. And so that just seems to me to be intuitively better. But you know, the data are the data. We need data. Uh, I mean, because you know, how many times has what we've we thought been wrong, you know. But are the data that say the cells are offline, they still respond to synaptic input if you stimulate. Mm-hmm. They still have axons. If you stimulate them, their axons still do things. And so um, so why think, would we think they were offline? I think it's because they don't seem to express um, plasticity any longer. Right. Or immediate early genes. Uh, immediate generally. early genes, I thought you were going to say that. Because, you know, immediate early genes are like that. Some cells respond to stimulation with by expressing them, and some don't. Right. And they're, they're, that's not a readout of electrical activity. Well, it's a readout of something wonderful and interesting. I think, yeah, I think that's a really great point, but there is another data set that um, I was forgetting, and that is people who've recorded with tetrodes oh, in the right. dentates. I'm thinking of um, the Lutgebs yeah. and um, the Moser Laboratory, um, but also many other people like Jung and McNaughton, and um, and other other laboratories don't find it easy to record single units from the granule cell layer. They find it very hard. Most of them appear to be silent, as opposed to CA1 and CA3. And I think that, together with the lack of immediate early gene expression, has generated this hypothesis. I think it's not just the immediately early genes. Um, and lack thereof. Spar- so, but sparse firing, of course, is predicted right. for this pattern uh, separator. Right. separator. Yeah. So, and of course, all those people know that. So they must be talking about 
even sparser than right. expected. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that the the the, the number of firing granule cells is so um, so low. It's it's much lower than expectation. That's an interesting. How do we guesstimate the sparsity of their formula for, for it? Yeah, yeah, there are formulas for it. And Bruce McNaughton and, and Min Young have have uh, ta- presented this in a number of talks. But what they basically, <clears throat> I think, the, the the bottom line is, is that if you are going to the dentate gyrus is already a sparse device, and very few cells fire at any one time to any given inputs. That's an argument for, against needing neurogenesis, in my mind. Why would you need even more neurons that, that are going to make it even more sparse? It just seems like overkill to me, in, in a way. Well, if you're adding... I mean, I don't know. I don't want to become a, a proponent of any point of view, because I obviously don't know anything. But if you, from a theoretical point of view, if the sparse firing is important for separating patterns, and now you want to learn new patterns. You don't want to do it at the expense of sparse firing, because what you're going to do is become crummier at distinguishing the patterns you already know. And so if you're going to do that kind of, you know, localist coding, where you don't use combinations, but you use really small numbers of neurons, then... um, then if you want to add something new, you're going to either have neurons you've never used before, Right, for anything, or you're going to have to have new neurons, which also amounts to the same thing, neurons you haven't used before. So it does. I mean, I don't know the calculation to know why it is too sparse, and and, but of course I believe it, not knowing it. That's the stuff I always believe. It's the stuff I don't actually know what it is, and the because as soon as I know what it is, I I immediately start thinking of things I don't like about it. But, (laughs) But the. The idea that you might, that if you're encoding things very sparsely for pattern separation, that that might be a place where you need more neurons makes perfectly good sense to me. And I might wonder, gee, how come the granule layer, the cerebellum, isn't doesn't have a lot of neurogenesis? Another place where we, you know, David Marr tells us we still live in the shadow of David Marr in some ways, and uh, he told us that was the ultimate. Pattern separator. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um. So, well, the um, well, yeah, the, the the point that I was getting at is that if it isn't used to sparsify output, then it could have some other function. And that's where the timestamp comes in. So, you know, I think the episodic memory function of the hippocampus is really crucial in looking at this because you do have many, many inputs over time that are similar, and keeping them separate is a big task for the hippocampus. Like this is the time I entered the room when I was here in San Antonio two years ago, and this is the time I entered the room five minutes ago before the presentation in San Antonio. Um, That, keeping that temporal code really separate and clear is going to be really, really important. It's a very hard problem, actually, to see exactly the same place over and over again and, and keep the previous times Straight. Oh yeah! Right, and in sequence. Finding your car in the airport. You know, I was just going to bring that up. It's the sort of ultimate problem <laughs> for I people tra- who right. travel a lot. Yeah, I have that problem in this parking lot. Well, this should be worse in some ways. It is. <laughs> we, we solve that by always parking in about it was the, the same, same place. place. Exactly. In the airport, you sometimes can't do that. 
your place is taken by somebody. Yeah, that's yes, my trips to the airport parking lot are sufficiently distant in time. I have no problem. But if I um, decrease that interval to a certain mm-hmm. amount, it's I get very confused. So I have go. to write it, it down. A discrimination, time discrimination. Yeah, problem. my dentist gyrus can only do so much. Well, it's probably a cell cycle away <laughs> <laughs> to get that memory. I've got another eight hours before I can encode yeah. this new information. But that's really difficult too. You know, if there's just a small number of cells, how can they encode something as complicated as relative time, or uh, something that's really detailed at all? If it's a few cells, there's, it's, I think we're missing something. I think there's something more to this problem, and um, so the first problem of why the dentate, but also pattern separation and episodic memory. How could a few neurons, we're really talking about few neurons, in one part of the system do so much? Well, if you consider those same neurons, so few of them do fire at any one time. It's what happens downstream, in my mind, is really what's crucial. And that's why the whole idea of granule cells acting and mossy fiber synapses in particular acting as detonators, I think is, you know, it's David Marr, I think, used that term, did he not? I don't remember that. Yeah, I think Bruce McNaughton. I thought I actually traced it back to one of um, that Tin's review uh, with Bruce Bruce McNaughton. Yeah, so I think that was, but I don't know. It's a great term, though. Uh, Yeah, it's descriptive, and uh, the the evidence is 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 pretty good for it, but it has yet to be really established. But that I mean that's where all the action is the heart of, of the hippocampus is CA3 and its well, recurrent input would you know allows for attractors and for discrete well uh, this is the other way to look at it is that in in order to have the detonator which you have um, and pretty much you only have with that granule cell synapse uh, at least in hippocampus um, is going to come a risk of excitotoxicity and it's going to come at a risk of losing some part of the system and so new neurogenesis, neurogenesis in the adult brain may maintain something about the circuit, which is pretty vulnerable if the detonator is used too much. Now, what doesn't quite make sense is why wouldn't you be replacing the targets that are hit by those detonator synapses, because they're the vulnerable ones. Instead, it seems like they're replacing the generator of the detonation. Uh-huh. So that doesn't make too much sense. Yeah. But if you really need the detonator and you're going that that need is going to come with a risk of too much glutamate release, it makes sense that something is built into the system to secure that the, there won't be damage. Uh, and the only problem with theory is it just doesn't uh, make too much sense that you would replace the detonator. <laughs> you should replace the target Targeting, that's getting yeah. hit by the detonator. Yeah. So it's the only part of theory that doesn't quite add up. Yeah, but but there isn't another location, and I think the cerebellum and the spinal cord is the same, where you get such um, um, potential for concentrated glutamate release. I think that, and that might be something that's key to consider here. So the other, so it's not just neuronal elements that are generating here. You've got a bunch of non-neuronal and epithelial and glial stuff 
uh, being born. Is that that's right, isn't it? And it well, does... in the normal in the normal brain, there is um, ter- every progenitor, to my knowledge, um, can make an additional progenitor as well as a potential glial cell, as well as a potential neuron. But what ends up being generated and surviving are mostly granule cells and and a replacement of the progenitor. So the system doesn't seem to be generating vast amounts of glia or endothelial cells or microglia. But in the uh, case of pathology, after a seizure, when there is damage, there's a tremendous proliferation of glia, and there's an invasion of microglia. There's there's angiogenesis, and there's a ton of changes. So so you're right on target in um, the um, topic of epilepsy. But I don't believe in a normal um, dentate gyrus you've got constant proliferation in the subgranular zone of um, microglia, glia, angiogenesis, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's also really interesting how much the GABA cells are made from the progenitors and how much new glia are made from the progenitors because the earliest stage of the progenitor is a glial cell. Um, I've always thought, um, I've always looked at this, and there's usually a paper every other month about GABAergic cells being generated. And eventually people say, oh, it's just very, very few. But we may be underestimating. Well, when you, yeah, when you consider that for every 200 principal cells, there's generally one GABAergic cell. That's been the ratio, at least in hippocampus proper. A small number might translate to being mm-hmm. a large number. Yeah, I mean, if GABAergic cells, each one of them contacts an enormous number of granule cells, you don't need that many, right? And, and that's true. Most of them have an amazing um, ability to target um, other cells. But I didn't know that there was one out of 200. I didn't know that we had, like, n- numbers that we that, knew That's of. an estimate. You're on the record now. Bro. Well, it was from 1984, and I think, actually, it was Schwarzkrein who... Who had written this? So. Oh, uh, that the 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 proportion of interneurons to principal cells. That's what I was yeah. what I was wondering about though is who has identified the um, of of the number of new neurons in the dentate gyrus in a given period of time. How many are granule cells and how many are not right, granule cells? Exactly. That I don't know. No, I don't think anybody's looked at that. Yeah. Okay, listeners, write in. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, Thank you, Helen Sharfman, for joining us. It's been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm